the light says, ah, there we go. Got it. Good morning. How are you all? How are y'all? Claire and I just got back from Tennessee. We've missed you the past couple of weeks. We were uh, down at Horton Haven at camp. Uh, we had a great time down there. We were directing uh, a bunch of eight and through 12-year-old children, about 105 of them. So uh, we had a great time. Uh, it's kind of interesting. Uh, the theme this, this summer at camp is the Olympics, and their, their verse uh, happens to be one of the verses we're talking about this morning. Uh, it's, it's run for the prize. Uh, so it's kind of cool that um, I was down at camp, and that was the, the theme all, all week was running for the prize. Uh, the upward call, and then I get back to begin studying my sermon, and it's uh, the same passage. So, uh, probably not a coincidence. Uh, So, if you would uh, join me in Philippians chapter 3, if you're not there already. Um, We're continuing our study in Philippians, uh, and we are in verse 12. So if you want to turn to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12, um, our first verse is an interesting one. It says, uh, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect. It doesn't seem like a verse you would start a sermon out on. Because what is he talking about? He must be referring to something previous, which he is. So we're going to have to go back and review a little bit from last week where KT was speaking. Um, hopefully you remember some. Uh, I wasn't here, so I don't know what he said. So hopefully we won't contradict ourselves. Um, but if we do, uh, I'm probably right. So, um, Just kidding. So uh, Paul starts here by saying, not that I have already obtained this, but we need to figure out what he's talking about. So let's go back a couple verses. Um, back to verse 10. Uh, where we fall right up on the heels of a very familiar passage from Paul where he goes through and says, um, you know, if anyone has reason to boast, uh, it's me because, you know, I was tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee. Uh, as for a zealot, I persecuted the church endlessly. Um, but all these things, I, have, I count them a loss to know Christ. So let's look at verse 10 in chapter 3. It says... Um, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul wanted to know that same power that had raised Christ from the dead. He wanted to know it in his life, that ultimate power. If I think of, or if we think this morning of, of ultimate power... Uh, we can look back throughout history and we can see how mankind has progressed, progressed uh, in various areas. You know, we've conquered flight. Uh, we can dive down hundreds of thousands of feet into the ocean in these little scuba things. Um, you know, we can destroy buildings. We can move mountains. Uh, we've developed this great technology, these powers, um, But the one thing that man has strived so hard for and never even gotten close to conquering is death. Never. 
men have searched in vain for the alleged fountain of youth. Uh, there's pills and vitamins and everything to, to make you live longer, look younger. But we've never, ever even come close to conquering death. It's like the ultimate power that man has no authority, no power over. The greatest general, Napoleon, um, the crazy um, Hitler, you know, all these leaders, powerful men, when it came to time for them to die, they died. And this is the power that Christ has authority over. We, we heard it this morning in the breaking of bread. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? Christ has conquered death. And Paul wants to know that power, the power of Christ that conquered death, that raised Him from the dead. He wants to know that in His own life. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 5, it says, We were dead in our sins, but we have been made alive with Christ. Paul talks about this in depth. It was read this morning in Romans chapter 6 that we were buried with Christ. We are now dead to sin. We are being made alive in Him. That power, that ultimate power, He wants to know it in His own life. Empowering Him to follow Christ, to live with Christ in victory over sin. He goes on to say, to share in His sufferings. Um, John 15 says that, uh, it's Christ talking, and He says, if they persecuted Me, if they have hated Me, then they're going to hate you because you follow after Me. It's inevitable. Many times throughout Scripture we see that believers will have to suffer for the sake of Christ. That we will be persecuted. Why? Because the world hates Christ. And again, Paul says he wants to suffer for the sake of Christ. To share in his sufferings. To become like him in his death. Again, dead to sin, alive to Christ. At that passage in Romans, Paul wants to know Christ in every way. He goes on to say that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now this is kind of a confusing verse. There's lots of different interpretations. Um, At first it may appear that Paul is saying that he's not sure he's going to attain this resurrection from the dead, but that's not true. I want to read a passage from uh, um, Bill McDonald, uh, how he interprets it. Uh, I like it, so I'm going to read it to you this morning. This is how he puts it. It says, Paul is talking about physical resurrection, but he is not expressing any doubt about his participation in it. Rather, he is saying that he was not concerned about the suffering that might lay before him and route to the resurrection. He was willing to undergo severe trials and persecutions if that was what lay between the present time and the resurrection. The expression, if by any means does not express doubt here, but a strong desire or expectation that does not count the cost. The Apostle wanted to be conformed to Christ. Since Christ had suffered, died, and been raised from among the dead, Paul wanted nothing more than this for himself. So, back to verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this. What is Paul talking about? Obviously, He's not talking about the resurrection from the dead because it's obvious that Paul is not 
resurrected from the dead. That would be a stupid statement. He is referring to the entire subject of his conformity to Christ, his striving to be like Christ. And he's quick to say to his readers, I haven't obtained this, guys. I'm not perfect. And no doubt Paul was um, faced with those who would immediately then say, well then, if it's not possible to attain, then why try? If Paul couldn't do it, then what are my chances? If one of the most influential godly men in the ch- history of the church says, I desire to be conformed to like Christ, but I haven't attained it. I'm not perfect. Then what are my chances? This is probably a, a common thought today and, and one that if we are honest with ourselves, we are guilty of often too. It's a nice thought we might think, but is it really practical? If Paul couldn't do it again, then what of our chances? But Paul goes on. He says, I'm not perfect, but what? I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus made me His own. Paul said, I'm not perfect. I haven't attained it. But what do I do? I press on. Why? To make Him my own. Why? Because He made me His own. And for what purpose? If we look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, it says that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. We've been called according to His purpose. And what is that purpose? It says, For those for whom, those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. He has made us His own. And for what purpose? To be conformed to Him, to be like Him. He wants to know us intimately. Christ came to establish a relationship with us. He came to save us so that we could be with Him, so that we could know Him. And that starts now if we are believers. I was encouraged this morning, uh, Jason was sharing, and a a similar thought that I've been having all week is this idea that eternal life, I have eternal life right now. Don't I, Jason? Jason? It's not that we're going to get eternal life one day. When we have accepted Christ as our Savior, when we've been regenerated, renewed, we have eternal life. And that is an amazing thing. And Christ is saying, I have made you my own for a purpose, so that you might be conformed to me. And Paul says, I press on to that. I'm not perfect. But what does he say? Looking to verse 13. He says, Brothers, I don't consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. One thing I do. As I read this, it immediately immediately reminded me of a passage in Luke. And if any of you know me, 
I speak of this passage often. It's my favorite passage, actually, in the Scriptures. And it's when Jesus is talking to Martha, and Martha is troubled because Mary's not helping her, and there's so much going on in the house, and she's trying to get a meal ready, and she goes to Jesus and complains. And what is Jesus' response? Jesus says, Martha, one thing is needed. One thing. Here Paul says, this one thing I do. Christ says, one thing is needed. And what was he referring to? He was referring to Mary, who was seated at the feet of Christ, her eyes fixed on her Savior. What does Paul say here? This one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Forgetting what lies behind. He's leaving the past behind with with all its past sins, its mistakes, failures, accomplishments, privileges, the good and the bad. Again, if we look back to verse 5 and 6, a very familiar passage where Paul boasts in his worldly standings and accomplishments, or rather does not boast in them. It says, I have counted them all a loss. I forget them. They are nothing in comparing compared to knowing Christ. Again here she says, forgetting what lies behind. Forgetting those things. The good and the bad. I press on. Sometimes I think that we as Christians, we get hung up on these past things. I think that we get hung up sometimes on our our hilltop experiences, if you will. In the, in the times in our life when we remember that we were really striving for God or that in some time that God was using us for some purpose, some of these spiritual highs, and we hold on to them. And we... And we hold on to them and, and we make them, they make us feel as though we're close to God. These past experiences. And so we stop striving. We become complacent and inevitably, I believe, we become apathetic. I want to read you a quote from uh, James Montgomery Boyce. He says, I've heard it said that old age is the point in life when a person ceases to look forward and looks back. If that is accurate, then there are certainly a lot of old and middle-aged Christians. This is a very tough statement, uh, but I think it's true, and I think it's true in many of our lives, and I've seen it many times in my own. That I look back, I stop looking forward, that I try to hold on to those past spiritual experiences, if you will, as my relationship with God. And in doing so, I set aside my true relationship with God and knowing Him. But Paul says, we can't do this. Forgetting what lies behind. Strain, strive forward to what lies ahead. Press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
Again, we were at camp a couple weeks ago and the theme was the Olympics. And no doubt Paul here has in mind the Olympians and the athletes of his day running and striving for the goal, the prize. It's quite probable that Paul had seen these Greek games. He uses the illustration often of the runner and the athlete. Paul lived in Ephesus for many for many years or for a couple years and there's an amphitheater there that seats about 100,000 people. Olympics were heard, held there on a couple occasions and it's quite possible that Paul may have seen them and thus uh, his imagery here. Even if he didn't, uh, just like today, it's, it's pretty hard to not hear about them and see them. Uh, it's, they're right around the corner for us. And uh, I know that myself, you probably have as well, seen many uh, specials or interviews on TV with these athletes. And their sport is their life. When they rise in the morning, which is usually very early, they practice. They practice all day. They eat, sleep, running, swimming, whatever it is they do. It's literally all that they do. It, it, it is their life. And why? So they can win. So they can stand on that platform in front of hundreds of thousands of people with the gold medal around their neck, their flag behind them, their national anthem playing for all to hear as these people look and honor them because they won. When they're running or swimming or whatever they do, they don't look out to the fans to find their parents to wave. They don't look back to the starting line to see, oh, well, uh, did I start well? Where am I in the line of people? That would be stupid. They strive. They press on with their eyes fixed on the goal, with all that is in them. You know, you've heard many times of, of athletes fainting or vomiting at the end of the race because they are using every ounce of who they are to get to the finish line. And if you run, you watch the races, as they get near, you see them sticking out their body as far as they possibly can in front of them because they want to reach the goal. In the same way, we are to strive forward. We are to press on for the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. As the author of Hebrews says, we are to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. But our prize is not an earthly one. We don't receive a crown made of olive leaves. We don't receive a gold medal. We are not striving for the praise and honor and fame from men. We are going to be in His presence. 
we are going to hear, Well done, my good and faithful servant, if we run well. We are going to see our Lord and we are going to be made like Him. This is our reward. One that is imperishable and undefiled, Scripture says. But one, I believe, sadly, we have lost a desire and a passion for. How often does the fact that Christ's return is imminent, that we will stand before our Savior, influence our lives, our decisions, our choices? I think it goes back to this looking back problem, being distracted. We become apathetic. We stop trying. We fall out of love with our Savior and in a sense we sit down on the sideline and we forget about our goal. has no effect, no bearing on our lives, our choices. But Christ came so that He could have a relationship with us. He made us His own so that we could make Him our own. And when we let in things in our lives that distract us from Him or hinder us from this relationship... We lose our love and our passion. We become apathetic. And in turn, it lessens our desire to strive for Him. And thus, uh, there is no real relationship that we're striving for. And I feel... And I feel so convicted as I was studying this sermon because this is so true in my own life. I wish that I really, every day, was excited about seeing my Savior, that I longed for it. but I don't. But I want it. I want to want Him. I want to want to see His face. I want the fact that He came and died on my behalf, that He shed His blood for me, to change and influence every thought and decision that is in, that is in my life. I want to not fear that I'm going to be ashamed when He returns. John encourages in 1 John 2.28, He says, Now little children, abide in Me, so that when He appears, you may have confidence and not shrink from Him in in shame at His coming. 
that thought makes me sick in my stomach. That when Christ returns, that I might shrink away in shame? It makes me sick. Why? How, how have we gotten to this point? How have I gotten to this point where the love of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, the joy of being in glory, of seeing my Savior, doesn't affect me? How have I become, as if it were, spiritually old where I no longer look forward? I only look back. And I think Paul calls out to just those. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Those of you who are grown in Christ, You've been saved for a while. You've learned. You've grown. Have this mind, he says. This is not a radical view of the Christian life. This is not something that only a few Christians strain and strive for. The greats, if you will. This is to be the normal Christian life. This is the logical response of the believer. Ron Hessian in his book, Calvary Road, says that if we were to strive every day to live every moment as Christ would have us, if we were to submit to the will of God in everything and to honor and glorify Him in everything, then we would not have done anything more than it was our duty to do. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Hold fast to what we have attained, he says. Let us hold true to what we have attained. We have been redeemed, bought with the precious blood of Christ. We have been made righteous, joint heirs with Jesus, saved from sin and death, and made alive together in Christ. Let us not forget this. Let us hold fast to our standing in Christ. As we shared and rejoiced in this morning, we are new creation in Christ Jesus. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We have been made alive in Christ. We are dead to sin. Let us hold fast to these truths. And oh, that I could say as Paul does in this next sentence. You need an example? Follow me. Watch as I do. He wasn't perfect. He already said that. But Paul was striving for the upward call. through the power of Christ. And he says, follow me. Or there's others who are also doing it. Follow their example. 
Then in verse 18, Paul takes a drastic contrast. He said, There are those that claim Christ, but deny deny Him with their lifestyle. Beware of them, he says. Paul is broken over this fact. He says, For many of whom I have often told you, now I tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies to the cross of Christ. Don't follow their example, he says. Their end is destruction. He says of them, their God is their belly. They live only for the flesh and satisfying its desires. Gluttony, sexual immorality, and the like. They desire to feed their flesh. Their glory, they glory in their shame. Ironically, they were putting pride in the very things that they should have been ashamed of. They were seeking to glorify themselves, their sin, instead of the Savior. With minds set on earthly things. For them, the important things were the here and the now. Material things, possessions, food, clothing, comfort, wealth, power, pleasure. Their minds were set on earthly things. And this is so prevalent. We see it all around us. And sadly, we see it within the church, even. And I dare say, even within our own lives. We are distracted by the world through living for the moment, the here, the now. And we're bombarded with this by our culture. You are the most important, you're told. So do whatever makes you happy. Don't worry about anyone else around you. Do what makes you happy right now. And again, Paul was broken over this, and he quickly reminds us that we are not of this world, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Our citizenship is in heaven, He says. Not earthly things, eternal things. And we are to wait with eager anticipation as our Lord returns. Again, we will see Him. We will be in His presence. We will be changed. These frail and lowly bodies that get sick, that get old, they'll be done away with. And we will be made like Him. We will be changed. 
Maybe I'll be taller. But it doesn't really matter. Because we will be with Him. In His glory. No more sin. No more sickness. No more death. No more worries. Only the pleasure of seeing our Savior. And I wish that I could comprehend what that is going to be like. I wish that I had just a taste of it. Sometimes I often think of different things that people love to do. Skydiving or scuba diving or whatever. Things that I've never done don't have really much to desire to do because I don't know what they're like. I know it's a bad analogy, but sometimes that's kind of how I feel in reference to eternity. But I can't really comprehend it. I don't really know what it's like. But I know what it's like to be here. I know the things I enjoy here. So why not strive for that? But the thing is, I think that if I were to strive to know my Lord, if I were to seek Him in that relationship, that I would begin to understand and comprehend that. Because if I de- begin to develop that love, that incomparable love for my Savior that I desire to have, then why wouldn't I want Him to come? Why wouldn't I want to be in eternity? Why wouldn't I want to be in His presence to see His face, to fall before Him? Chapter 4 and verse 1 is our last verse this morning. Closing thoughts for Paul, ending out chapter 3 and and transitioning to, to some encouragements and challenges in chapter 4 that Matthew is going to share with us next week. But We see Paul's love for the Philippians. He says, My brothers, whom I long for, my joy, my crown, my beloved. Paul had genuine love for these people. He weeped over them. The Lord broke me last week. It had been a long time. But I was at camp and I had the amazing honor and privilege of talking to a number of young kids and sharing the gospel with them. It's been a long time since that as well. But on two separate occasions, I sat after chapel with two eight and nine-year-old boys and they asked me, how can I get my parents to go to church? They had accepted Christ. But they knew their parents were lost. And they were upset and they were broken over this. And it broke me. It had been a long time since I really, really cared 
for another believer as I did at that moment for those two boys. They were going back into a home where their parents cared nothing for spiritual things. And they knew it. And they were heartbroken over it. One of them stayed pretty much every night after chapel to talk to me or the speaker. I don't know what that's like. For many of us, we have been blessed abundantly. I don't know what it's like to be eight-year-olds and to be, to be concerned that my parents aren't safe. To be a child and desiring to go to church and desiring for my parents to take me, but they don't. I want to love you all selflessly. But I don't. I fail at it all the time. Because I'm selfish. Because I'm concerned what you think of me. But I want to be like Paul here. I want to say brothers and sisters whom I love, whom I long for, You are my joy to be with you, to share in this journey, this life, to strive together with you all. My beloved, stand firm, he says. Paul's final encouragement and challenge to the Philippians is to stand firm. I think I'm going to do a study on this because within the last week I've seen in four different books where Paul encourages the people to stand firm. In Ephesians chapter 6, after Paul tells them to put on the full armor of God, he says, and in doing so, stand firm. And here, after he says, to strive forward, to run, to press on to the goal, to the prize. Stand firm. And I kind of thought that it doesn't seem like the exhortation that should be right there. I would think that a more fitting encouragement would be, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love, whom I long for, my joy, my crown... Now that you've put on the full armor with your eyes on the prize, strive forward. Run out to battle. Doesn't that seem more logical? But he says, stand firm. I think it's key to remember that Christ has won the victory. That we have only to stand in Him and His righteousness. 
again as it was shared this morning. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sin? Christ has conquered sin and death. And we have but to stand in His righteousness. By faith alone in Him, we are changed, we are renewed. Ephesians says in chapter 2 that it's for gra- by grace you have been saved through faith, that of, not of works, so that no man should boast. But then right after that, he says, you are Christ's workmanship. You've been created anew. For what? To do good works. So my final encouragement to us this morning is that we stand firm, that we stand fast as we press on toward the goal of seeing our Savior. My encouragement this morning again is that we do this. And I want to share with you guys in this. I want to encourage you all and for you to encourage me and to love one another and for us to really grasp what it means that Christ is coming back and that we will see Him. I want to live every day in light that He's coming back. Do we believe that? Do you? I think I do. I know I do. I just want to live like I do. Because I don't want to be ashamed when I see His face. Think of the joy that you hear from friends or family when they say, well done, to something you've done. It's not even going to compare to hearing Christ say, well done. Way to strive after me. Way to make me your own. I loved you and I sought you for relationship with you. And you have done the same. You have loved me in return. Well done. Father, we come before you this morning and God, I want to be changed. Father, I've been a Christian for many years and it's become normal to me. It's easy to to live in a a comfortable Christian rut, if you will. But I don't want that, Lord. I don't want to stand still. I don't want to look back. Father, the same power 
that created this universe. The same power that raised you from the dead is the same power that has saved us and given us victory over sin. Father, we ask for that power this morning in our lives that we may stand firm in Your righteousness, that may we strive on to be conformed to the likeness of Your Son. That we may forget everything in comparison to knowing You. That that might be my desire, Father that that might be our desire this morning. And not only this morning, but for the remainder of our lives here on earth. Empower us, I pray, in your precious name.